Welcome to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who have lived self-actualized lives on their own terms and find out how they got there, what they do, how we can get there, what we can learn from them, how to live our best lives, find our own definition of success, and most importantly, find joy. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Welcome back to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people leading self-actualized lives, finding out how they got there, what they do, how they make it work, what can we learn from them, how can we take this into our daily lives. And today I've got Sophia Valenza. Now, if you are in the horse world, you may or may not know who the Valenza family are. They, to some degree, are a well-kept secret. If you are in the world of classical dressage, you probably do know the name. And if you live in Europe and you've ever seen this amazing show that goes around called Cavaluna, which is sort of like Cirque du Soleil, with horses, well, you may or may not know that they are a large part of that. If you ever were seeing some of the big equestrian shows like Cavalia and so on in the USA, these really had their inspiration from a lot of this work that has been done by the Valencia family over, over many, many years. But it's a, a greater story there, and it's not limited to horses and horse stuff because they represent, the, the, the Valencia family really represent a culture within Europe, within Portugal, that is a, a hangover, a survivor, you could say, really from the Baroque age. And it's almost like a national treasure that exists there in Lisbon with Sophia, her father and her sisters running this extraordinary, extraordinary place where, where they're really a bit of a dream factory. So whether you're into horses or not, if you've, if you've had a sort of dream of a fairy tale forest and horses doing something in that and you want to go and look at that show or you want to be part of that or you that's sort of what they do and they've been doing it for decades and doing it very very well but it's not easy um it's the kind of thing many of us would love to do run away with a circus but they are the circus so sophia thank you for coming on live free ride free tell us who you are well, thank you for your invitation. It's really a pleasure to be part of this. And um, who am I? Oh, I'm just a lucky girl that uh, was born in this family. And um, I was lucky enough to be able to grow up watching my father teaching and uh, learning from him and in a very natural way. So he was never forcing us to be in this life. It was a life we chose. And we do it with a great, great passion. It's really important to be in this life. If you just, if you don't have the passion, it, it's, it could be a disaster because it's usually we say, if you do what you love, you don't have to work a single day in your life. And this is what I do. I don't work a single day in my life and I live not on a holidays because it's, it's quite a hard work but it's uh, done with a lot of passion. So who am I? I am just a girl that grew up around animals and I was always moved 
by the passion of being surrounded with animals, not just horses, but dogs. And I was always like, you know, I was the one always bringing dogs home. I was the one only always having more connection with the horses, not just being riding them, but, you know, creating good connections. And yeah, I can, I'm able, I'm able, no, I'm fortunate to be able to have them every single day of my life. So what we do and you were, it was really enjoyable to listen the way you describe what we do, because it's, a, it's true. We live like it in a fairy tale. And when people come to us, it's a little bit what we provide. It's experiment a dream, a dream that they can bring home and then start to create with their own horses. And this is a little bit what we try to do, not just with the shows, like you said, and it's not just some people come and they say, it's not just the circus or if you come here, it's not, you will not just see the, a show. You will see uh, a real school. And when I say a real school, it's not just about learning or how we might teach you to deal with your horse or to understand or to develop a, a language that will help you to understand better your horse. It's also a school of life. And today we were here with some clients, a, a lady from the United States, and she was amazed the way we handle the horses, the way she feels how happily the horses live and how happily they work every day, that it's, it's really beautiful. So it's, it's, it's a bless. I think it's a bless to be able to do what we do daily. So for those listeners who don't really know what we mean by the word classical dressage, let me just enlighten you a bit. The word classical means handed down from generation to generation. Dressage comes from this word in, it's a Viking word actually, dressir, which means to put together. That's why you have salad dressing. That's why you are dressed when you wear your clothes. You dress a horse, you, you put it together. And in this old manner of doing it, which arose on the steppes where Europe meets Asia about 5,000 years ago, probably, where they have a very hot type of horse and the locals there went, oh, that might be quite useful for, you know, making that an extension of my thoughts you know, on the battlefield. I wonder how I do that. And they figured out this system, which got passed down, ended up in Mesopotamia with the Persians and the Babylonians and ended up going over to Greece as so those guys went to war with the Europeans. And then of course the Europeans took it on. As the classical civilizations of the Mediterranean, Greece and Rome, mostly expanded West, they encountered these Ibero-Celtic tribes down in the Southern end of what is now Spain and Portugal, where they found a particular kind of horse which was even better in the battlefield, even better for working the livestock, even better for everything than the horses that originally were coming out of Persia and so on. And through the Renaissance, a number of great masters developed. And if you've gone to an art gallery, you've seen pictures of monarchs, of kings and queens of Europe sitting on these very beautiful horses in the 17th and 18th century. And they all look the same. They all have these big necks, they have these big flowy manes. They're very, very beautiful. And they look like they're dancing. And 
that's the horse that was found in this part of the Mediterranean and ended up being exported out to the rest of Europe. And everyone ever since then has looked down to this area of Europe for the expertise in this. And this is the line that Sophia's family and Sophia's father have promulgated and create allowed to be a living culture even to this day. So when you enter their riding hall, you basically feel like you're going back to the 18th century. It's really extraordinary. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm in one of those paintings. It's like, oh, that sort of exists. That's real. Oh, how wonderful. How amazing. So, Sophia, tell us about this Lusitano horse. What is it that made the Greeks, the Romans, and everybody else and their dog throughout the medieval period, throughout the Renaissance, and ever since go, that is the horse. That is the meta horse. This is the mm -hmm. horse. Why? why? Why is it the meta horse? Because, you know, we need to go back in time. And the horse was created by the nature. And the, the natural selection of this horse, which is still nowadays the same horse that's the same kind, the same type of horse that you were talking from those times. That horse, who created this horse, was the living together with the bull, the wild bull, the ones that we still have nowadays that were used on the, that are used still on the bullfights. And what, what happened is that this bull created a gnarly, a pact living together with the horses. And this bull is very aggressive. They can live together, but they have a very fine line. If you cross that territory, the bull will attack you to kill. So this is where it starts the main, the natural selection of these horses, these Siberian horses that are very fast, very flexible, very agile, very noble, very warriors, very brave, very, there's so many positive aspects that when they, these warriors arrived and saw the potential of these horses for the war, they started to, to really work with those horses because in the battle one-to-one, -one, those were the horses that could save his rider, his warrior. When the war changed and uh, the battle one-to-one -one didn't, when the, the machine guns, sorry, when the machine guns arrived, the type of horses needed in the battlefield was another type of horses, was when you have the cavalry where they need to run on a straight line because then they were charging with machine guns. So in Portugal, we still had, we, we started to use those horses for the bullfight. So that's why they always kept the same lines of this horse that is very fast, very agile, very playful, very brave. And it's the same horse that is still now used in the bullfight. What brings us to keep the classical dressage is that if you use a modern dressage, training this horse in a modern way, you will destroy this, this beauty of these horses. Because what we need to always keep them updated, it's their flexibility. And with the modern dressage, they kind of ruin the flexibility, the way the trainee is doing. So we have always respect the needs of these horses to always, always respect their morphology, the way they should understand their own bodies. 
the way they learn how to use their own bodies. And, and in a very natural way, this is what we did. So we have developed our method based on the training of those horses to always respect their best qualities, which is the flexibility. Well, you also mentioned playfulness. This is really interesting to me because one tends to think of dressage riders as control freaks. You know, any of us that watch the sport of dressage on, on TV for the Olympics, for example, we can often appreciate it's, it's looks beauty, beautiful. Maybe it looks very controlled perhaps and disciplined, but it doesn't look like a lot of fun. In fact, one could say it looks a bit, should it be dressage or should it be stressage? You know, it looks a bit stressy. And I, one has seen horses looking a bit robotic, yet you mentioned this playful nature and this, this necessity of respecting that sort of joyful side of the horse. How do you bring that in? How do you marry that with the need for the kind of control that you have to have when you're doing these massive balletic shows that you send out all over Europe? Because they can't go wrong, because right? Yeah. They, no, they can't go wrong. But also, they should not be taken as uh, robots or like machines. So what we need is that, and when we start a young horse, the first thing we do, we start to analyze his personality, his character. How does this horse react to certain things? And another thing we do is that we will never destroy the beauty of the nature of a horse. A horse should always be able to be a horse and to express himself. Like you said, we, we work for the shows, entertainment shows. So we don't need the horse to speak to the crowd. That horse, when goes into the arena, he needs to speak for himself. He needs to, to be proud. He, he goes into the scene and he goes like, I'm here and I'm performing to you. And the crowd needs to, to listen to that. Um, and, and I think this is one of the, the biggest challenge is, and beauty at the same time, because I prefer to have a partner that is enjoying and, you know, we allowed him to express himself than just, you know, ride a bike and no emotions. <laughs> not that they don't ride bikes. And, but I think. Mostly of you understand. I yeah, prefer, it's not, a a, a, it's not machines, exactly. When you have a horse though, that is so powerful, playing and being playful and expressing itself on a stage in close proximity with several thousand people, where you're asking for an almost sort of an explosion of energy. How do you do that in a way that allows the horse to express himself? but not so much that it could become dangerous. How do you, how do you tread that line? But express himself. It's not a horse that is bucking or a horse that is losing his mind. Express himself is like, if I ask him, for example, to do, imagine we do a transition to the counter. That horse, he needs to bring emotion to the way he will bring himself into a, that transition in counter. It's not just. Now I have this horse and in A, I need to do this transition to, it's, you know, they need, if a horse goes a little bit with his head, a little bit more up, he can look around. If he, if he's here, look a little bit to the audience and then he comes back to me, it's okay to do that. It's just, 
they don't need to feel like a prisoner performing and not feeling the crowd. But when we want them to express themselves in a way that we will lose their mind because then that is not expression, then that is stress. So a horse needs to be calm, he needs to be zen, he needs to be with you. And once you have his soul, he will go to the end of the world with you. So they can perform to wow, 10,000 people and having lights, having the, the sounds, and they are still enjoying and they are still there with you, performing for you, with you, to, to, to the audience. And honestly, I, I think the best world nowadays, if you combine, if you this fusion of the modern dressage with a classical way, honestly, I think you have the best way of being with a horse in the world. And I can bring my, my, the name of my daughter, you know, she's, she's doing dressage. She loves dressage competition, but she has a very nice background on the shows. So when she performs in the dressage and imagine she's doing a free, a freestyle test, it's like, it's like she's performing. She's, she's enjoying the music and, and she's, it's, it's really beautiful to see because it's the fusion of this classical world with modern dressage where you respect the body of the horse. The horse has to be understand how to bring all his beauty. And for this, and I think that the secret lies on if you want to allow the horse to express himself, he needs to work with suppleness and using his body and not just, you know, performing like with stiffness or forcing him to do something. It's, you need to allow the horse to think on himself so that he can really bring his soul. We, you say, we need to see his soul. Right. You, you say when you bring the horses in, in the beginning of their training, you analyze their personality. Do you look for a certain showmanship? Do you look for a certain horse that, that does have this kind of, hey, hey, hey attitude? Is, is that what you're looking for? You say, okay, that's the horse which we need to bring oh, to the show or how are you select that? We, the way we, the way we select them, it's, it's, uh, in a, so every horse will be special on something like every horse in the world was born for something. And if you really understand in what he's good at, he will be amazing on it, but I cannot force a horse that was not enough skills to be a Grand Prix horse and I cannot force him to be a Grand Prix horse, but maybe this horse will be an amazing working equitation horse. And then if you really find his own way, he will be amazing doing what he was born for. That's why sometimes, you know, in the show and you have seen our shows, you see, we have the, the horses that perform the hairs above the ground. Not everybody is able to do a Caprio. Only a few horses in the world are able to do a Caprio. So when you choose a horse, and this is a very specific exercise I'm, I'm bringing here because I think it's easy to understand. If a horse, well, how you see a horse is good to make, to perform a capriole. So first, this first behavior has to be a little bit too spicy. It has to really be very, very hot and a little bit naughty, a little bit naughty. And then you will use that. And giving him the right tools, you will be amazing 
doing a capriol. But what is important to understand is that this horse that can be a little bit hot, can be a little bit naughty, can be a little bit spicy. Once he has the basics, you will have the power of telling this horse to control his own strength. Otherwise, it's just a crazy horse. And unfortunately, we see a lot of crazy horses out there just because people don't know how to deal with this hotness. And, and sometimes it's, it's hard. And if you, you cannot just force them to do something they were not born to do. And, and, and it's really important that we, we understand their nature and to explore their nature in the way that they will understand how to, to become the horse we want them to become. So this is just an example. We don't search for something special, but this horse will tell us he's special on something. And then we will drive the horse to his speciality. That's why, you know, in the world you have doctors, you have mechanics, you have engineers, you have architects. In the end, they're all people, but they have to, to choose their own way. And the ones that are really good in the things they have choose to be something professionally, they become very good. It's the same with the horses. So again, we will not choose them to, in a certain way, they kind of tell us what they are good at. And then we try to give them the way in the best, in the best lines that they, would, they can perform better. For those listeners who don't know what a capriole is, let's just explain. It's a rather spectacular thing. So I just want you to sort of shut your eyes for a moment and what you imagine, you may have seen pictures or films from maybe the Spanish riding school of Vienna or something like that with the white stallions, where you see a horse jumping into the air in a really controlled way and, but really high into the air and then kicking back violently, but controlled in this sort of balletic yet sort of martial arts type movement, kicking back with the back hooves, the front hooves are, are tucked up. Maybe he has a rider on the back. Maybe it's done with people on the ground. And it's always something that when the crowd sees it, and any of us who've ever seen it, the explosion of power always brings an emotional reaction. You cannot see an animal that beautiful doing something like that without having this <gasps> lift of the heart, where, um, whether you know anything about horses or not, it's, it's just flat out beautiful. And the, that controlled explosion of power is a very, very difficult and somewhat dangerous thing to do. Tell us, um, there must be a system, there must be a method in the, these old books that were written by these old masters down through the centuries. I've looked at them. I've, I've read actually quite a few of them. They're unreadable. Unfortunately, they were written by, you know, noblemen who were not particularly worried about editing themselves. They were certainly not trained as writers and they contradict themselves every five pages. And what they're trying to get across is if you already happen to know an awful lot about it, it's, it's like re reading a book about maths written by mathematicians for mathematicians. If you're outside of that closed priesthood, it's very hard to, to understand what on earth they're even on about. One of the things which I found revelatory about coming into contact with the Valenza family was that I had always thought that this dressage, this classical dressage, these beautiful movements, this sort of, was something a little bit reserved for a higher priesthood of riders, certainly that not somebody like me could achieve. And when I walked through the door in Lisbon with you and your father, Sophia, the first time someone said, oh, actually, no, I can explain it. 
the concept is relatively simple. Okay, doing it's going to be quite difficult because we're dealing with a horse who has his own ideas and his own nervous system and his own sense of humor, and you're the joke. But nonetheless, the concept is relatively simple. And when you guys explained it, I realized, oh my gosh, this is actually replicable. Why isn't everyone else doing this? So can you give us the one, two, three of what this old master's system, which you would now call Valenza method, that you've inherited from these many centuries of, of, of equine technology, if you like, how does it work? What do you do? How do you train these horses? But not specifically to achieve the capriol, correct? Not just, just in general, just how do you lay the base for where you would eventually end up there? Because in, in a very simple way, I could explain you how we do teach a capriol. And if, if you put it in small fractions, it's quite easy. But to go there, first the horse needs to understand what is primary school. So what we do, and it's a little bit the same learning process ever as a young kid. So we start to develop primary school. And I always defend that a kid with six years old, you will spend the first four years on his life learning in school. So in Portugal, they start at six years old. I believe in Europe, it's a little bit the same, right? The kids go to primary school his first year, around six years old. And those first four years are the most important years in the life of a student. If those four years, they are weak, giving their basics, they will have gaps as they go to college. And some, they will never finish high school. Some never be able to go to college because they don't understand because the basics are not good. So when we start, we always like to introduce the first level of the Valencia method as the primary school. It's where the horse starts to develop a language that will assess him to understand you. You want to develop a simple language so that the horse starts clearly understand yes, no, the basics. Once you have that, then you can start to progress. And those basics that you will start on this first stage that we are start talking about. So we usually we start the horses with the age of three and a half years old. Between three and a half, four and a half, it's the best age to start. You can always start them later, but the more the horse lives in the freedom, the more difficult then it will be to start to introduce those basics. The same happens with the kid. If you, you leave the kids starting, imagine you put the kid at, with 10 years old to his first year of school, you're going to be a little bit more hard for him than a kid with six years old. Just because they are more greenish, they know less about life and they are more open to learn in a more simple way. The kid with 10 years old is already more naughty because life has taught him a little bit more things. And then when you want to bring him to the basics on school, sometimes it's a little bit more hard. Not impossible, just a little bit more hard. Before three and a half years old, we should not start because the horses, they are still growing and maturing. So the perfect age is between three and a half to four and a half. So when you start to work them, you really want the basics of the basics is the horse needs to learn that you are there as friend. 
And once you have this friendship, the horse starts to respect you. And the real meaning of respect you, respect. If I want the horse to respect me, I need to respect him. Otherwise, he will never respect him. So based on these feelings, you start to, to gain the, the soul of this horse. And he starts to be there for you because he respects you, because you have respect him. And, and then it's easy. Then once you have his respect, and again, respect not in the mean that he has to be afraid of me. I mean the real mean of respect. I'm here for you. Let's do this. Let's start this journey. I trust you. I will go to the end of the world with you. Then simply you start to use your body language. You start to use your voice. You start to use a few tools, even before he knows the rider on top of them. When you have this, then you can start to progress and the horse will start to have some tools that if for some reason it starts to be more stressful, he can rely on you. So somehow you can down the stress because a horse under stress, he will not learn. So it's really important that we have to create tools to control the amount of stress that the horse can have. Because either you want or not, when a horse is learning something, sometimes they get confused. And the way they deal with confusion, it's with stress. So we need to be able to control those stress to calm them down. And then he's able to learn. So a horse under stress will never learn. And this is really important. We, we develop tools to control those moments of stress. How do you minimize stress with a horse? What, what are your go-to tools with that? The first tool you will have to have, the most powerful tool, is that the horse accepts you as friend. Because, you know, in Portugal, the horses are born in the wild, in the nature. And for three, during the, the three years old, three years, the first three years of their life, they do not have much contact with the men. So when we start to train them, there's a lot of stress in them because they don't trust us. And a, a, a horse is a fleet animal. So as soon as he's afraid of something, his first reaction is to run away. That's why they are still alive in this world. Otherwise, they would be dead. So they need to have this instinct to protect themselves. So if you don't have, if you don't gain his trust, a horse will live in, in stress all the time. So this is our first lesson. It's a horse coming into the arena and learn that we are there to be friends. He needs to respect me. I don't want to be his best friend where he will sit on my lap. I want him to always be a horse. I want him to understand there's a line that will separate me as a human being. I love you. I respect you, but you will not jump on me. So this kind of respect, it's important that there's boundaries. Um, and sometimes it's very, very easy to let them cross this line, this boundary. And sometimes they want to be more friends than they are supposed to be. So it's also important that we are smart enough to always design this line of, in the end of the day, I'm your friend. I trust you. I love you, but I'm still the alpha. I need you to listen. And once you really start to have this feeling of being the alpha, then you are in control. In control in a way that the horse is not afraid of you. 
he respects you and he will be, as soon as he takes you as your alpha, he will, he will want to follow you. Why? A horse will always need alpha. That's why in, in a yard, you will hurt, yard, hurt. My English, sometimes it's a little bit Portuguese, <laughs> but in, in the, how you say hurt? In, in the, the pack? Oh, in the herd. Herd. In the herd, yes. The herd. In, 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 herd. A, in a wild herd of horses, yes. In nature. They, 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 need, they need their leader, right? Yeah. And then they follow. And the leader also has to be, usually it's the smartest horse. He's the one that is more aware of dangers. So uh, not everybody, not every horse was born to be a leader. And in nature, they will develop this uh, leadership. When a horse comes into the arena, you need to show them you are their leader. How do you do that? How do you do that in a way that doesn't make the horse feel threatened? Because at the end of the day, we are a horse's predator, right? We spent two million years hunting them. Now suddenly we want to sit on their backs. How how can we cross that line, predator to prey? Exactly. You need to really have a very good body language. And, and, but the same, that's why nowadays there's a lot of therapies that are used for leadership, you know, big companies that have problems, people that are bullied by others. So they use this kind of therapy and they use the animal so that people understand what leadership means. And leadership means that I, now you are afraid of me. You do what I told you to do. And now you have to do it. It's not by fear because a good leadership cannot transmit fear because they will never have a good team working for them. So leadership is that I'm here for you. I will help you. I will guide you, but I need you to trust me and I need you to follow me. So there's a few exercises that in the first lessons they will learn, which are quite hard to explain them with just a voice because I need you to picture some images. Well, well, we can do that. Have us shut our eyes. And let's go into the arena with you. We're, we're going to the arena with you with this three and a half year old horse who's coming from the wild, uh, as you say. Hasn't so, had, w- so what's there's, happening? There's, there's this exercise that sometimes we don't give enough importance. It's, it's really, really, really important. That is, imagine you're launching a horse and the horse, okay, he already goes well into the circle. He understands he has to do the circle, but then we stop them. And we do something that we call meeting point. And what is the meeting point? Is that you go into a certain point and the horse that is going on a circle, he will keep going until you will meet you on that meeting point. And um, all the horses that come from the field and they are afraid of the man because we are predators for them, they will stop a few meters And even if they don't want to run away, because after a while they don't want to run away, but they are still not trusting you enough to go to you. And one thing that we always explain when we give our lessons and we start to explain how we develop the method, we always say, even if the horse stops like one meter away from you and you are happy with that, but you want the horse to move forward to you, but he's not going and you say, oh, it's just a bitter. No problem. I go to him. And the horse accepts you going to him and you pet him. And the horse is quite calm and did accept that you go into his world. But he was, he didn't accept, he was not trusting you enough to follow you to your own world. 
if you don't have this, if you don't gain his trust to move this, that one meter to bring him to my world, I don't have the trust of this horse. So he was being the alpha. He said, I stop here. I don't trust you. You will come to me. And this is what mostly of the people do. They go to them and they pet him. And the horse says, mm -hmm, I got you. I make you trust you to come to my world. I don't trust you enough to go to your world. And you see, this is just a little detail that people think, oh, he stopped there. I just go to him. And it will be something that later on time, there's a gap there. And you how will. Do you, how do you make the horse take that meter step towards you? So it's sometimes you just need to be patient. <laughs> you invite him, like using your body energy, like, you know, like you, you want him to follow you. Like some, somehow, sometimes we do this with dogs. You call your dog, you want him to come. So you're kind of inviting him because it's not the word that will make the dog come to you. It's the energy you put in the world. And, and this, it, this is, I can tell my dog, get away from here, get away from here. You will come to me, right? It's mm. not the word. It's the energy you put in the word. And if that doesn't work, sometimes we need what we call a ghost help. What is a ghost help? Is that you ask someone to go into the arena and from the behind of the horse, like a little bit far away, but the, the person from the behind will send the horse to move forward a little bit. That little bit that make the horse come to you, trust you, because what he will receive when he goes to you, love. When he comes to you, what you give him, you pet him. The horse will feel your hand touching his body. And it's, it's nice. Who does not love to be pet, right? The horses are the same. They love to be touched. They love to receive love. So they learn that when I go to her, I can trust her because she's kind. She will give me love and, and, and I'm not giving him treats. I'm, I'm gaining his trust by the love I can give him and not just by a carrot. I don't want to buy his trust. I want him to feel what love is. And this is how we really, and you know, after a while, this ghost, why we say ghost? Because the person is there and then is not there. So the horse is sending forward by someone that behind just said a little bit, just move or he does a sound or with a whip sends him a little bit forward. And we need to do this two or three times. And the horse learns that he can come to me. He have trust that he can come to my world. And that you are the safe, simple. you are the safe place to come to. I am the safe place, but he needs I to understand that, that we are the safe place. Are you tapping in also to the horse's natural sense of curiosity? I mean, horses are intelligent animals. They, they're curious about life and they, they need to be curious, presumably. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to explore their environments in, in, in nature. How do you, are, are, are you tapping into the horse's natural sense of curiosity as well? And if you so, have to. Well. You have to. Remember when we start this conversation? When I, where we defended, a horse needs to express himself. So when you analyze a little bit the horse, you need to, to, to see his reactions to everything. If he comes to me and he wants to smell, we, we, we kind of, we, we let him smell. 
when it starts to smell, it starts to, to relax. You touch him and you feel how he reacts to the touch. And if a horse is a little bit stressed, when, he's, when he starts to trust you and you pat him, you have the power of control stress just by the way you touch a horse. It's like, it's like you, you can transmit that energy to him when you touch his, his neck, when you touch his eyes. Another thing, when a horse comes from the field, they come very suspicious about the touch in the head. Some of them, because they, they are in the field, and, and, but the vets, they need to take care of them because they need to, to be treated, because they need the vaccines, because they need to, 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 to take medicine to clean inside. And so their first contact with the men it's not the most friendly contact because it will come this, they will be in a place and then they come this, this man that needs to give him an injection. And sometimes things are changing that people are learning, but sometimes they hold their ears so they don't, don't move. And that can be very traumatizing for a horse when we start then to, to be there, to start their journey. So it is really important that the horse starts to allow us to touch on the, those parts of the body that can be more reactive to them. The ears touching their eyes, well, their eyes, not touching their eyes. Now the vision of you, we are not touching their eyes, but if we pat a horse, it will make them close their eyes. And somehow that can be very calm. The phrase, some horses will not allow to touch their mouth. They, and, and if, especially if they are born and growing in fields with electrical fences, you see them a lot, right? To contain the, the paddocks, <clears throat> they, and all horses to learn, they need to touch that sense. And then they learn because they touch it and it's a little bit ouch. So they will not touch again, but we start to feel that they get very sensitive on their nose. Because they get very like, oh, don't touch me here. Because when you touch me here, I, I'm afraid of the fence. So, you know, some horses, they don't even care when we touch them. But some others, they're very, very sensitive. And the head, usually, it's one of the most difficult parts to, to, to conquer their, their trust. We need to be able to pet the horse everywhere. So the horse must be able to accept the human touch pretty much all over the body <laughs> before you can begin. All over. Yeah. Yes. 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 In and, a way that um, makes them feel this is a safe thing. This is. Exactly. Because if a horse does not imagine if, imagine, imagine now, imagine that you are afraid that I will touch you because you know, you had something that you know, you don't trust and you are afraid. If I, if I don't pass this barrier, how can I handle this horse that not even being able to touch him? He does not trust me to touch him. How can I ride this, this horse? You understand? Mm. So it's really important that we go through that phase. And, and that phase, it's, it's really important that we don't rush phases. If a horse is taking more time to accept you, we need to give them that time. Mm. Some horses, the day they come from the field, 
you can launch them, you can touch them everywhere. And some horses, after a month, you are still trying to break barriers and barriers and barriers. So we cannot rush and we need to respect the time each horse is showing you that he needs. And, and this is really important. So here you are now creating these extraordinary equestrian shows, which go all over the place and basically show a fairy tale on horseback. It's sort of Cirque du Soleil on horseback. And then, but you also have, you know, your daughter, as you say, who's in the competition world and you're, the sort of excellence. And you have this effectively living free and riding free family culture of every day you getting together with your, your tribe, with, with your father, with your sisters and, and the rest of your family producing these extraordinary animals and the teams that will go out and present them to the world. But it wasn't always so, I believe. I, th I think it, it, it's, always a, it's always a bit easy to jump to conclusions and one would assume, oh, well, you know, if Sofia Valencia is coming out of this family that produces these fancy dressage horses everywhere, then they must come from, you know, a lot of money. They must be aristocrats or they must have something else. And I know that that's not true. In fact, I know that you were actually born into quite difficult times. What was happening in, in uh, Portugal in 1974, that year that you were born? So in, in 74, there was this big revolution in Portugal and we, we went from a dictator to, to, so you went for extremes. We had a dictator and then we came with a communism. So you came from, so suddenly from one day to the other, the life change of a lot of people. And I was not born yet in April. This was in, in, in April that happened. I was born in December, but my father that was working with horses was found in, he found himself in a very hard time because he was working horses from other clients. And some of those clients, they, they, they had the money, but suddenly from one day to the other, they lost everything because suddenly if you had horses, you were considered like a rich person and, you know, as a communism thing, they, they would go after you. So a lot of people that had big farms that had horses. So suddenly they said, I need to finish all that or we are in trouble. So what happened with my father? He was not the rich person. He was just working horses because he always, I always say he had a rich life because he was able to follow his passion. So he was rich because he was doing what he loves, was being around horses and, you know, working the horses and, and follow, following this passion. So suddenly, my, our, I'm the youngest of three, uh, of three sisters and my father and mother, my mother, she was not working at the time. Suddenly, they had no job. And my father had a few horses, so he decided to move to Spain. So there we went to Spain in 75. I was born in December 74. And uh, in 75, they just waited. I had a few months so that, you know, Traveling with a, a born baby, it's, it's not easy. So maybe I was like four or five months when they moved to Spain. And they had to start all over again. 
my father and mother, they had the three girls. They, we, the three of us, we were very tiny and, but they are very strong. And I always, we always have them with a very nice example of, of a couple that love each other and, and they, they believe they could just go to another country with three children's with a few horses and well, they did not have a dog at the time, but there we went and two and a half year, we lived in Spain. My father always followed his dream working with the horses. So that's what he did. He, he, he worked some horses in Spain. Then we moved to this, we started in Jerez de la Frontera. Uh, my father had good friends. Don Alvaro Domecq was a good friend of him that have helped him. He was having the horses where the, 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 Royal, the Spanish riding school is in Jerez. It was actually beautiful because we have been there like two weeks ago. The, there was a show there with the four schools and we, it was nice to, for my parents to be back there and see old friends. And, and it was really, really nice to, to be back there. Then after Jerez, we went to the Gran Canaria. So my father has this proposal for work there. And this is where he start to gain experience with the shows. Gran Canaria, it's an island that always worked with a lot of tourists. So it was the proposal of uh, work there was to, to build a show with horses to entertain the tourism. So for two years, they, they did this show. We were not part of the show yet because we were really small. My sisters, they were already riding horses, but not part of the show. And then in 78, 78, the end of 78, I don't really remember the dates. They decided things were more calm in Portugal and they decided to come back to Portugal. In 79, my father met this Spanish man in Portugal and together they decided to do the project of the Selge. So our writing center, the one, you know, the one you have been here and because of the experience he gained in Spain during the show, he, he could do something that was really unique in Portugal. So we were the ones starting to create a big, um, events. So it was like evenings where people came and have this gala dinner with the show included. And I have to say was, we were pioneers doing this kind of uh, projects and it worked really, really, really well. So it was our golden days when we came back to Portugal and then they developed these, these facilities and was really amazing. So bringing back for your question. We were never rich people in terms of money, because, you know, if you want to make a, a small fortune on horses, better to start with a big one, like everybody knows this. So we were always able to survive around horses in terms of financial, but you know, money, is not everything. Of course, everybody needs money and we need money because we have a lot of horses that depend on us. But our goal in life, it's not to be rich in terms of money, but it's to be rich 
in terms of the passion that we have and that we are able to say that we wake up every morning and we do what we love. I think this is the best, it's the most rich way of being in life. So there you are, you're a girl and you, you, you're back in, you're back in Portugal. Your father and his partner are putting together this sort of pioneering show, sort of showcasing this old masters, this sort of Baroque way of, of presenting the horse as if it was at like a royal court to the Kings, but the Kings are now the people, you know, sitting there having the dinner and paying for the show. And you at some point do start working in and riding in these shows, presumably you must've sort of seen this as a little girl and go, oh my gosh, that's just, you know, fairy tale come to life. And that's my dad. And I get to be part of it. How did you, how did you yourself and your sisters flow into becoming part of these shows and, 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 and what did you do in them? You know, you just said it. How did we flow in? It was so natural that if, if I want to remind myself, when was the first time I was sitting on a horse? I cannot remember because I, I was so young. That was before where you develop memories that, you know, those memories that you remember when you're older. Mm. So it was so natural that I think we all start to ride even before we were walking. Mm. So it's a, it was so like, it was just there. It's, it's like breathing air. I do you know how you start to breathe? You have no idea. You just did it. So everything, it was so, so natural. And, and another thing that was so natural that nowadays I start to think that was really natural was the way we learn to do what we do. It's also natural that you don't even think what you were doing because it comes naturally because you have grown up doing it. For example, the, when you work the in-hand work, we, we started to, to train people like you do train people to work the horses on the ground or to do a little bit what we do. Uh, and we start for, with the groundwork. So this is a primary thing. If you want to learn the method, you need to learn how to work the horses from the ground. And so we teach all kinds of people, people with more experience, less experience, people, older people, younger people, and they all come. And once we start to put them on the ground with the horses and, you know, it's like dancing with the horses, you just move around with the horses, they cannot even walk. And you go like, but this is so easy. This is so natural. This is, how can you not walk? So it's, you see, it was so natural that it just happened. So I suddenly, if I try, I'm trying to think when, when was my first show? I don't remember. I was really young. I don't remember that we missed a lot of school because we were already doing the shows. And in those times, you know, you were allowed to, to miss school. It's not nowadays, if you, if your sons or daughters don't go to school, then you're in trouble because school, it's mandatory until a certain age. Right? So in, in my time, I remember my mother sometimes was 
called into school, like saying, you know, your daughters, they, they, they miss a, a lot school. And my mother was like, I know, but you know, we do these shows and they do these shows and we travel the world. And this is also important. So it's, was a, was a really nice school of life that we were able to live and learn from it. I'm not ashamed saying I was not in college because, you know, I achieved what I achieved. Because I really had a very rich life in terms of, of seeing the world, doing what we do. And, and we, we, with all the cultures of, you know, when you perform for those shows, you were performing for different cultures because we, we work with a lot of tourist people. And that also brings us to another world. I think it was a very rich way of learning what the world is. So again, I don't remember how I started. I don't know. It was there, was always there. Here's a Every question. Day. Here's a question about that. When, when you grow up with something naturally, it can be quite hard to teach other people how to do it because if you, if you haven't had to break it down yourself, and then as you say, there you are trying to show somebody how to walk with the horse for this in-hand work. And for those listeners who don't know what in-hand work is, in-hand work is basically where you you teach the horse to do the stuff that you're going to do when you ride him before you ride him so the horse effectively understands before you add the rider what these things are and therefore there is less stress and there's a, a smoother learning curve and that is really the basis of this of this old master master system and what different makes it different from just going for riding lessons and so on it is a relatively complex thing to learn i mean let, to, to learn to dance with a human is complex enough and humans both speak monkey, right? So one monkey can, to the other monkeys, communicate in a way, even if they don't share an actual spoken language, in a way that they can sort of work it out. But a horse doesn't speak monkey. And in fact, the horse regards the monkey, the upright ape with the eyes in front as a predator. And they're a bit skeptical of us with good reason, because it's terrible. But, you know, if you got hungry enough, you'd eat every horse in your stable. You wouldn't, if, you're, if, it, if your kids were going to starve, you wouldn't be happy about it, but you'd do it. So the horse is right to be a little bit skeptical. So when you come to something like this, as you say, so naturally and to such a, a high standard where from, you know, very, very, very young, you are, as you say, traveling the world, showing what most people only dream of being able to do with horse. Now it's your job to go around the world and teach people how to do what you do. And I'm going to plug this at the end for the listeners. You should, if you ever want to do anything meaningful with horses, you should go and work with the Valenza family. So how do you then, as a natural, teach someone who is not a natural? How do you bridge that gap? How do you break it down? You know, it's life is made of opportunities. And we have a very dear friend, a very good friend, that one time he said to us, you know what? You have a method here. And what is a method? Is that when you do something in the same way, you will achieve a purpose. So if you break this method through into little pieces, you are able to teach even a monkey to do this. And this dear friend that is actually now talking to me, Isaac, Rupert Isaacson, was the person that really bring out the name of 
method to the Valencia method. So how many years were you here? How many years ago? Ooh, that, Can you remember? I, I think we first came out to you in 15. Was it? I seem to, because Ileana was pregnant with little man. No, no, it must be 14. No, no, no. Is no. it before much that? Much before that. Gosh. Much before that. Yeah. 12? Much was before it 12? That. It was a while Maybe. ago. Well, was was in another life, right? Back in the Pleistocene. <laughs> yes. When mammoth bellowed to mammoth <laughs> across the primeval swamp. Yeah. Anyway, so we were doing this because we all were always doing this. And when we want to teach someone to do something that you are doing so naturally, not always is easy, but if you start to break it down into little pieces, it's more easy to pass the word. So this is what we start to develop. We start to break into small fractions what we want people to understand so that they can be able to pass the same language to the horses. So if... That's why everybody that comes here, and even if they have experience on the groundwork, if they have not go through the Valencia method, if I want to speak the same language as this person that wants to learn the method, we need to go from the basics and we start to introduce you from the beginning. Because it's in the beginning, it's this basic word work that will give you the pillars for the future work. If you really speak the same language I'm speaking to the horse, later on we have a lesson and I can bring you to that world because we speak that same language. And we are not, you know, this one is not speaking Chinese and I'm speaking Portuguese and we go like, oh, can't you understand why? And then he speaks in Chinese and I don't understand why you don't understand if I'm speaking to you. So it's exactly the same that happens with the horses. So. If the horse will not speak the language I want him to understand, it's more difficult to go somewhere. So this is what the biggest change we did over the years was to become, we need to put ourselves in the place of the student. And okay, this is natural for me, but it's not for them. And if he's not able to walk, it's not because they are stupid. They are not able to walk because they are frozen and they are not understanding what we want. So we need to stop and, you know, go into little pieces and then everything, sorry, everything starts to make sense for them. I have a question. I have a question for you. So you said that what people need to learn how to do is how to walk with a horse. This is intriguing in a way that is like a dance. What is the how, what, what is this walk? This isn't just a walk from A to B to the supermarket to buy a bottle of milk. It's a different kind of walk. What are the steps of this dance that somebody needs it's to do? It's exactly if you are learning how to dance. So when you learn how to dance, first you need to know the steps because they're so different kind of dances, right? So we will explain where you need to move and then you need to understand that when you move you will have a partner and that partner so when you start to dance if you're a man and you start to dance and you know that when you your steps of dancing it's to move forward 
you know your partner needs to move backwards. Simple, right? So now let's imagine we do our partner will be the horse. And we always have to bear in mind that our partner is the one that needs to move forward. Therefore, we always need to think of moving backwards. And this is the first step of learning is to move backwards and inviting the horse to follow you. And then, of course, there's more things. The horse needs to be familiar with the touches of the whip because the whip will invite also the horse to move to you. But then also, remember, on the first lessons, you were helping your horse to trust you, to follow you. So you need that wall was already broken, right? The horse is following you. So he's no longer afraid to follow you. So all those little steps have to happen one after the other, after the other. And if you block in one step, you cannot move forward. We need to find a way to pass that step so that we can move forward. So when we do the groundwork, it's really like a dance. And in the beginning, you feel like you are looking into your steps, seeing where you are putting your feet. And then suddenly it just comes out naturally and it's like just music. You will, you will start to dance with the, with the horse. And, and it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. That's quite intriguing, the idea that you have to basically take the male part of the dance in a partner dance where you're the leader. But instead of moving your partner backwards in the traditional way, you have to in, induce your partner to follow you. That is, so I would imagine that even people that understand partner dancing quite well if you're the person in the partner dance who's walking backwards, you're being directed, you're being led. Yet you're it, moving it, backwards it, now in a way that is the leader, which that's an intriguing psychology. It, it depends on the dance you're dancing. I don't remember which one it is now. If it's a Brazilian dance or like a tango, there is one that the woman moves forward. So, you know. It's just a mindset. Yeah. You can still be the leader and you say, you follow me. I need you to, you will still be leading. Just you are leading on a movement more backwards. Because remember, you always need to remind yourself that your partner has four legs. He needs to control four legs. You only need two legs to control. So it will be easier for you to move backwards, right? But, you know, it's, it, it's just difficult until it becomes easier. And then it's easy. <laughs> so, okay, let's take a listener. We'll take listener, that one over there. I'm going to pick him up and I'm putting him in your living room. What are the first steps that you're going to teach this person how to do? It's got to start every, every dance. You go for a salsa lesson, they tell you how to put this foot forward, this foot back. There is a step. What is the first step of Valenza method? The actual physical step with the foot that someone is doing that you showed? It's, it's moving backwards. How? Just go backwards. Okay. And and at what speed? Am no, I running backwards? Am I? No. You are am I going backwards moving. on my bottom? Am I going backwards on a no, pair of roller skates? No. You am just I pogo you just, stick. You just you just you just close your eyes and just give one step back. Imagine okay. someone is pushing you and you just go backwards. And then when this is backwards, then you start to want to draw a circle, and Go a little bit backwards and stepping on a circle line. This is quite hard for me to explain without 
visualizing it. But you need to, to be able just to be coming backwards. And when you do this without a horse, you just close your eyes and you imagine the horse with you. And you just, you want to invite him to come backwards. And what is the tempo and what is the rhythm? What, what, what well, are you the, counting the in tempo, your head? The tempo and the rhythm will, will be, because all horses are different. And imagine if you have a little horse or you have a big horse, you have a laser horse, you have a very sensitive horse, it, the horse will give you the tempo, but just, you know, just to start, you just, you just move backwards on the same speed as if you were going forward and imagine yourself on a shopping mall, watching the shops, you're not running, you're just observing. I like this pair of shoes. Oh, but I like that watch and I like this t-shirt. And you go from one shop to the other and on a pace that will allow you to see the clothes that shop has in the outside. So you're not rushing. You're going at a massive pace. You just go on a pace that you, you need. You can go on a pace of a collect walk. Imagine collect walk. So a collected walk would be, and what is a walk? Is it a, a four beat? Is it a two beat? Is it, what is it? A walk is a four beat. So, so a thinking, walk, okay. the walk, the horse has four legs. The horse has four legs. You'll need the horses to, to the walk is always four beats. It's one leg after the other, after the other, after the other, one after the other, after the other, after the other. This is one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. A walk always needs to have the four bits. Otherwise, okay. if you have two bits on a walk, you have, how you call, umblad, umblad. That's not a good walk. I don't know the name in English. Mm -hmm. When they go like, like the yeah, lateral that, steps. Indeed. Humble, umblad. Yeah, I don't yeah, know the name. I, I, like a it's a good, it's a bed. It's, it's a, a bad walk. Yeah. We don't want the bad walk. You want and an actually, e you want an even four beat. One, two, three, three, four. four one, one, two, three, four. Moving a little bit. If it's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, it's not good. Yes. Yeah. So we really need the the pace you want to go backwards will be the same pace you want to move forward. And then you know it, you just not go backwards. Sometimes you need also to move forward, but when you move forward, you turn yourself and you still move forward with the horse. And, and this is where it's more complex. It's that you need to move backwards or forward, always thinking that the horse always needs to move in that direction. So for example, if I say, okay, now you move backwards so the horse will follow you. But now I need you to turn and move forward. The direction that the horse is moving will always be forward. Just you have to be the ability of sometimes you turn facing the horse and you go backwards. Sometimes you turn yourself and you give the back to the horse and you move backwards, uh, forward, sorry. Bear in mind, the horse will always be moving forward unless later on you want to work on more collections and you start to teach the horse to rein back. That's the different thing. That's the only moment the horse will move backwards. But later on, 
right? So when we start to introduce the steps of the groundwork, this is what you need to be able to move backward, forward, or sideways without interfering on the pace that the horse needs to perform. To guide and allow rather than pull or hustle. Never pull and never hustle. And this, I imagine, can be quite difficult for people if they're feeling um, the natural stress it's, that comes with know, learning something new with a very powerful animal standing at the, end, is, at the end of your hand. It is. How do you get to stop rushing and must, calm down must, and not stress? Because we, we use trained horses. Mm-hmm. So this is where the, difficult, the difference comes. Is that if you come to us, you will be learning how to dance with a partner that knows how to dance. So you are not teaching, you are not learning at the same time you are teaching your horse. So you're learning and from a dancing master that has four legs. Exactly, exactly. So it is really difficult to teach at the same time you are teaching your horse to do so. Mm. So what we want when people come to us is that we recreate feelings experiences that people gain memory muscle so that when they go back home at least they can be fair enough for their own horses and ask them what they want them to ask because sometimes you know sometimes you just want to do a shouldering but you have never rode a shouldering before how do you know what your body needs to feel when you perform a shouldering correct just for the listeners who do not know what a shoulder in is, let's just clarify. <laughs> a shoulder in is when a horse is being asked to put its inside hind leg under its point of gravity, which is one of the first exercises that will help the horse to contain his energy in a way that we would call collected and learn, therefore, how to dance. Later, there'll have to be another one for the, for the outside hind leg to come under. But it's one of the foundation exercises that you see in the horse training world, and it's not easy. So back to you. Okay. So someone is is trying to learn a shoulder in, but they've never felt it, never seen it, never done it. Yeah. How how can they learn it? Yeah. How how can you tell your horse to perform something that you have never felt before? And this is just a small example. So it's not impossible. It's just, it will bring your journey a lot more difficult because sometimes, and sometimes it will bring you to a way of, okay, my horse is doing the shoulder rate. And then we arrive there to give a lesson and we go like, this is not a shoulder rate. This is a head hit. So what happens? The horse is turning his head. He's not bringing the shoulders in. You, you know what I'm saying because you, you understand dressage. So for those who don't understand dressage, maybe you should bring another example. But just so that we need, to be fair teaching our horses, we need at least to have felt them at least once in our lifetime. So that at, you will become much more fair when asking to the horse the feeling you are searching for him to give you. Absolutely. Now, I went through this learning curve myself when I first, obviously I I grew up with horses, but I didn't grow up with horses in that way. And then when I realized that I needed to learn something about dressage, as you know, 
Sophia, it happened in a very strange way because it was tied up with my son's autism and my son had started speaking in the saddle in front of me when he wouldn't speak anywhere else. And I noticed that when the rhythm of the horse w was dance-like, what people call collected, he spoke more. And then I noticed that this happened with other kids as well. And then I thought, okay, why is this happening? So I went to neuroscientists and they said, oh, it's because when the hips rock in this way, in this soft way, the child is getting filled with a communication hormone and a feel-good hormone called oxytocin. I thought, oh, oh, well, okay, well, then I need to learn more about this. So then I began this dressage journey. And as you say, I started learning. And even with my background in horses, I found that people's explanations were incredibly unclear. And what happened was they would sit you on your horse who also didn't know it. And then they would try to tell you and the horse at the same time how to do something that neither of you knew. And I could see immediately just on a practical level, well, that, that's just not going to work very well. What do I do? And so I started asking people, okay, if you're in my position and you need to learn this thing that everyone says is impossible to learn in under 500 years in a bit of a hurry, where would you go? What would you do? And then everybody said that was a professional in the field that I asked, they said, oh, you should go to Portugal. I said, but why? And as you pointed out, they said, ah, because of the Portuguese bullfight, they still train the riders there from the get-go on educated horses and then gradually bring the rider up to that level where they can educate a horse and they do a lot of the work from the ground. I thought, oh, that makes sense. And then of course I went down to Portugal, found it was true. And then this name kept coming up, Valenza, Valenza. And people say, well, if you really want to learn, I can be really, really, really like, really want to learn. Not just like a bit learn, but like actually learn, you got to go to this family because they're doing it in the purest form. And I, and I said to them, well, why is that then? Why are they so good? And it was pointed out to me that your dad and you guys had to not just train these horses to work in a normal context, like a riding school or a, or a competition, but had to go out for three to six months of the year, 2000 kilometers away up in Germany and do this show that went around for seven, seven months, seven, seven months. months okay. Do this show in front of the most critical audience in the world, the Germans, where you're not allowed, you're not allowed to suck. You can't, you can't have a bad day. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll eat you alive. And they're, they're an educated audience when it comes to horse stuff. It's an, you know, it's a horse culture and you cannot suck. You've, you've got to, that you've got, your dad has to sleep at night knowing that that show is going to work and he's not going to lose the contract because if he loses the contract, he can't feed his family. And he's got to, if a rider falls sick, he's got to be able to replace that rider. If a horse has a problem, he's got to be able to replace that horse. And I thought that's the person, those are the people I need to learn from because what they're doing is they're creating a universal horse. They're not just creating a horse that an expert can ride. They're creating a horse that can go out and do something like this. That means there must be some secret to the training. Of course, I went and found it was true. You guys are geniuses. Where I want to bring people into your world a little bit, whether they're horse people or not, let's say they've dropped now into your riding arena and you've taught them these first steps of the dance in this Vivaldi type adagio, you know, moving backwards, one, two, three, four, inviting us, moving forwards, one, two, three, four, inviting the horse, moving to the side, 
one, two, three, four, inviting and directing the horse. Once they've learned to do some of this at the walk, what comes next? What's the next thing you teach them on the ground? On the ground, then we move on more to the reading work. We develop more the trot and the canter on the reading work. Later on, we will come back to the ground to work and start to introduce more collected work like the payoffs, Spanish walk. Some people, and I, you'd have to do it. You do develop the horses in trot and canter on the ground because you have a purpose for it. You need the horses to work from the ground because you need to prepare them and then to, to more collected work, but still with assistance from the ground when you work with the kids on the program. So that's, that's a very good tool for you. When we don't like too much to teach trot and canter from the ground, just because you will start to, to give, it will be a more difficult journey to do it by yourself. When you go to trot on the ground, you start to go away from the rhythm of the horse. Some horses have big trots, some have let, less big trots, but the horse to, to work in a good tempo in trot to develop well his rhythm, that one, two, one, two, it's a bigger pace, right? More difficult to follow him from the ground. So when we start, so in very, very easy, I, I tell you in a very easy way how we develop a young horse. So the first months, it will be 70, 80% groundwork. And then the 30 or 20% that we do the rhythm work is just so that he gets used to have a rider on top of him. We are not develop the horse with the, the rider is not developing the horse with the rhythm work. So we do lunge work, groundwork. The groundwork is a little bit that kind of a dance that will work his flexibility. And then the rider sit on him, but the horse is still controlled by the person on the ground. The horse can is ready to move on. So he says like, I'm okay with you being on top of me. I don't care that you are there. I accept you. I'm not tense. I, it's cool. I can do what I trot, canter, and I don't feel that what are you doing there? What are you doing there? So he accepts me. The horse can start to be loosened from the lunge work. That means that the person that is lunging the horse on the ground starts to become the ghost help. What does that mean? He's still there, but the but he's not there. So he's still giving his presence from the ground, but the horse is being more controlled now by the rider on top of him. Now explain to us what lunging is. Not everybody knows what lunging is. What is lunging and why is yeah. it? Lunging is the horse is learning how, what a circle means. Well, a circle, I think everybody knows what a circle means. A circle is not a square. <laughs> the circle is um, not a Why does a, a horse potato? need to learn how to what a circle is? Why not the a circle? Square? Why not a triangle? Because, because a circle, it's the once the horse goes into the dy dynamic of the circle, he will start to to develop his balance. Okay. He will start to go into a dynamic of going by its own. He will start to have this kinetic movement. He no longer need someone to be pushing him because he went into this, this rhythm, this balance 
and you really be starts to be aware of his own body. So, and when we launch the horse, we create circles. Sometimes we add some straight lines, but then we come back to the circle. So that's what launching means. Launching means that the person, there's a person in the center of the circle. There's a launch that will connect the person to the head of the horse and the horse start, imagine a compass, you know, that things to draw a compass. Mm -hmm. There's, there's one leg of the compass, which is the rider on the center of the circle. And the other leg of the, of the compass, it's the horse. And by going on a circle, we'll, we'll perform that perfect line that the compass can draw on a paper. It's exactly what we want when we launch a horse to create a perfect circle. So later on, the horse starts to be more controlled by the rider on top of him. How that happens, because we start to develop contact. The contact is developed through a snaffle that he will use on his mouth, connected with the reins that will hold then on the rider's hand. And so before the horse knows what the reins means, he is connected with the person on the, gr on the ground, with the lunge. And then when he starts to be aware that there's a contact, there's the right rein, there's a left rein, this person on the ground starts to have a less presence in the work. This is when we start to call this presence ghost is there, is not there, is there, is not there. And progressively, there's a passage of the learning aids that the horse have learned from the groundwork to the ridden work. And each horse we have will have his own time. Some horses, they start to be less dependent from the person on the ground easily than others. So again, we always need to respect those timings. And if a horse is still very depending from the groundwork, it's because it still needs to be more, more confirmed on what he's learning so that he, we can give him always good basics. If we rush steps, we will create gaps. And those gaps later on, we will fill them. It's like if you learn maths, you know, two plus two is four. But when you start to put the things more complex, if, if you keep going and putting things more complex, more complex, the person that is following the math, it will collapse. So sometimes we need to go back a few steps so that we can move more, more, more steps. And, and again, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to explain it. Such a long process of cur learning curve in, in, you know, in, in a few, in a few hours, it's, it's not easy. Sure. And obviously we understand that this unfolds over more five plus years or so in an education, which I guess, you know, really is, is similar to the education in any field, right? Five to 10 years is normal yeah. to learn any skill. Yeah. But here you've got two, two things trying to learn a skill, a skill, a monkey and a zebra at the same time with the zebra being vaguely worried that the monkey might eat him and the monkey being mm. vaguely worried that the zebra might chuck him onto Back the ground. Back him out. <laughs> something else. Yeah. One of the things which stands out when you say, you talk about the importance of the circle is a couple of things. And earlier you said that your school in Portugal, that it's not just a school of horsemanship. It's a school of life. One of the 
curious things about the literature of the old masters is that this correlation, this parallel between the dressage of the horse and emotional regulation in the human seems to have been noticed from the get-go. In there is there was a Greek writer who wrote the first manual of horsemanship that we know of in Europe. Of course, it's not a European tradition. It goes back before. I found out that the first exercises that you were describing actually were written down as the first ones that we've ever found were found written in cuneiform script in on clay tablets in Nineveh in Babylon from 1375 BC, describing exactly what you described, Sophia. And we even know the name of the man who wrote them. His name was Kikuli because he signed these clay tablets and he was managing the stables of the royal Hittite kings in Babylon at the time. So clearly we, we, we're dealing with something that's been functioning for a one, you know, millennia, not just centuries. But when it came to Europe, after the wars of the Greeks and the Persians, there was a man called Xenophon who wrote what we know as the first manual in a European language. And what's interesting about Xenophon is he wasn't just a horseman. Um, he was a philosopher and he was a friend of a man called Socrates and he was a friend of another man called Plato. And a lot of philosophers know Xenophon, not for his writing work at all, but for his philosophy, which is very similar to Platonic. But what they don't know is that he was actually a mercenary and that he worked for the Persians who were actually the enemy. So like working for Wagner or something, because they were the ones who had these skills. And then he brought them back after he finished working for the Persians and fought for the Athenians again and opened a riding school and wrote a book. And he actually said, I'm not the best at this. The best is a guy called Simon who has a riding school down the road, but he doesn't want to write a book. So I'm going to write the book. So, hey, and he writes this book describing many of the same things that you've described, but he draws this parallel as well between the circle as a sort of sacred geometry of transformation almost like a sacred mathematics through which the horse and the rider learn to balance themselves and not fall over and find their rhythm and learn how to carry themselves to the point where they could go into battle and become one mind. And this business of schooling the mind then comes up again in the, in the 17th century, there was a very famous French horseman called Pluvenel, who established the whole thing in France. And he went to the French king and said, our, our nobility are out of control. We've had 150 years of civil war. All, our, all the aristocratic youth, they just fight duels with each other. They kill each other. And then the estates never have stability. And then they go and fight private wars with each other. And if we keep going like this, we will never be able to push Spain off the top of the pyramid where it's sitting right now. For this, we need to get control of our young men, of our nobility. I propose four riding academies in France in which they're also taught mathematics and fencing and dance and astronomy, and blah, but music, but specifically horsemanship because of the need for emotional control. What do you have to say about that? You, you talked about the school of life there at your, at Selge, your, which is the name of your, the acronym for your riding school. Tell us about this emotional regulation. Tell us about this school of life. 
you know, I can, I can just say it in a very simple way. If, if you want, if you want to gain the respect of a horse, you need to learn how to respect him. And in life, it's the same. If you want to be, if you want to sleep at night, you need to be a good person. And our family, family, as an example, we are three, three sisters. And honestly, I think my parents, they really did an amazing work, an amazing job, the way they always have taught us the values of life. And, and Rupert, you have been here, you know how much we respect each other. So in this world, there's a lot of, especially in this dressage world, there's a lot of egos, like I'm better than you are. And the people go to the competition tests and it's always about, I'm better than you. And it's not about themselves, but it's like proving to the others that I'm better than you. And this is something you will not feel at our home. It's like, there's a respect for the work of each other's that this is what I think it's really what will bring a good team. If I'm, if I'm doing something and I need help, I will be the first one to ask either my sisters, either my colleague that is next there or my father, of course. And we go very, in a very humbled way saying, you know, I'm dealing with this problem. What do you think? What are you seeing that I'm not seeing? How can I be better? And, you know, my sister, she jumps and she goes like, but show me, show me what you're doing. Show me. And then ah, maybe it's this, or maybe it's that, or maybe it's that. And this formula, it's what will bring you to success, Su success, 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 success. success. And it's not just about the horses. It's just, you know. We, I'm 40, almost 49 years old. My sister, she's 40, 52. My other sister, she's 50. We still, every day, sit at the table with my parents. Every day. Every day from at one o'clock, we go home. We sit, we have lunch and we talk about, well, always about horses, of course, but you know, just because we are paranoid about horses, but it's everything like in a very nice way, always to become better. Every day we want to be better than the day before. And every day we want to teach the people that work with us to be better than we are. You know, it's, it's the biggest proud we, ha we have is to see riders that have started with my father, riders that have started with us, either myself or my sisters, and that nowadays they are teaching and they are, um, immediately you see the lines, the, the way they work, the way they teach. We, it's like you see yourselves. And, and this is, I think it's the most beautiful homage people can give us is that if I teach someone and he becomes better than I am, then was a good, was a good way of being in life. It's always about trying to, we, 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 what we do, it's not a secret. What we do, it's on the benefit of each horse in the world. So if we are helping people to understand better their horses, so why not give them the tools 
that it's not a secret. We don't want to to bring that to to the to the to our coffin. We don't want to put it in a book that only when we die everybody will see about it. We want it to pass in life. And and every day the horses will teach you new things because you know it's a, it's a learning curve. You you learn every day you are learning something new. And and if we are really helping people to understand better their horses, then, you know, I think it's a good, it's, there's no egos here. There's not this thing, I'm better than you are. There's this thing, you know, let's do this together because we will become stronger if we go together on the same, on the same way. It's definitely one of the things which I think anyone who's come into contact with the Valencia school comes away with is this sense of, of a wider family and tribe that, as you say, you guys set the example by operating as both a close-knit family and an extended family, but you're very, very welcoming. So it's like coming to an African village or a Mongolian gear and you're welcomed in. I had this experience with you guys, you know, you won't say, well, we're off for lunch right now. We'll see you, you know, back in the afternoon. You, it was always, no, no, come to lunch, come to lunch with us and engage in the conversations that we're engaging in and share with us this family, this tribal, this clan life. And if one traces back the whole lineage with horses, one sees, oh yes, well, it came from tribes. It was a tribal thing. It was granddad and grandma transmitting the knowledge to the next generation, to the next generation. And with the young people up on the young horses, because it didn't matter if they got thrown off because they're made of rubber and uh, the older people who don't bounce anymore, you know, with the knowledge directing and the knowledge being passed on in this familial, really friendly way, not an authoritarian way. And then of course, in the modern world, so many places where one goes to try and acquire knowledge, whether it doesn't have to be riding, it could be school, it could be a musical college, it could be any university, it could be business school. So often the transmission of the knowledge is done in this top-down hierarchical way, which of course is never as good. And I remember one of the first lessons I ever had from your father when I, at the end of the lesson, I said, oh, thank you for the lesson. He said, oh no, Rupert, that wasn't a lesson. That was simply a, a conversation about a particular aspect of equestrianism. And let's, let's uh, continue talking about this over lunch. And it blew my mind because um, everywhere else I had been, the, the, the transmission had been much more militarized because of course, you know, so much of riding particularly has come down through the military tradition. This thing of, and then, and then as, as one meets the other people who've kind of gone through contact with the Valencia school, a lot of them s support each other and remain in touch. And then those of us that now run riding schools of our own, we always end up sending our people down to you. You know, it's that logical thing where we say, well, you know, at a certain point, really, you shouldn't be learning from me. You should be learning from my teacher. And that there's this very easy flow to the whole thing, which really comes down to family and tribe. And it, it, it seems to me that family and tribe, it's one of the great lo lost ethics really of, of our modern age. Do you feel that in Portugal, that is just simply stronger? Or do you think that your family and what you do, it's even within Portugal, it's something a bit exceptional? Well, I think it's a little bit ex exceptional. I think 
I'm not saying that other families will not do this, but I think my parents were really able to transmit the, the good values of us to be able to work together and keep working together with the respect of always supporting each other. Because sometimes, especially in families, you always have a little bit this kind of jealousy or now I need to be better than you because I want to, you know, I'm the, the youngest sister. I need to be a little bit more smart because, you know, I'm, I'm the smallest one. And, and this, because this is a little bit the nature of the human being, it's a little bit like, unfortunately, it's a little bit part of the nature of human animals. They don't have this kind of feelings, right? There's. There's a dog is not, it's not, it does not want to be better than him. It's just maybe he wants to be the, the leader, but not always he is able to be the leader, but it's, you understand what I mean? They don't do. have this, this, this kind of feelings that is only part of the human being. And that's why I think they really were very smart. And again, don't ask me how they did it because it was so natural yet I don't even know it's just it's just there but you know my father a lot of you that have listened my father's name it's like for example today and it it, it just happened today he was on the phone with this Spanish man and because he was just asking he saw a horse in 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 a public thing and so he was calling this man saying, oh, I see this horse and, you know, I'm looking for the horse with this aspect and this and that. And, and the man was asking him, yes, but where do you live? This All this in Spanish. And then the, my father said, oh, I live in Portugal. Him in a very humble way. I live in Portugal. I have a writing center. Yes, what's your name? Hi, my name is Luis Valenza. And the man goes like, what? You're not Luis Valenza. You are Don Luis Valencia. <laughs> so the man knew him and he was being so humble because, you know, he was not like, you know, I'm Luis Valencia. Like he was like, no, I'm just, I'm just me. <laughs> and it was really funny because sometimes people think he's in a pedestal and, and he's not reachable. And then you arrive in our facility and maybe he's doing the garden or, you know, or putting water in the arena, or painting a wall because it was dirty, or, you know, it's the most humbled man that I have ever met. And, and I, it's, I think this is beautiful because, and if you go to him and you say, you are the greatest master, he just shrinks himself and he says, no, I'm just a person that every day tries to be better than yesterday. And every day I, and you know, my father is now 77 years old. And nowadays, if there's a horse that arrives and he goes, you know, a little bit more complicated or because he needs to be, you know, the basics are not there and the horse is a little bit more complex because the horse is lost. That night, he will not sleep. Or if he sleeps, he will dream about what he will do the day after. How can I help this horse? How can they help this horse to become better? How can I help this horse to understand what I want? So it, and he's 77 years old. And this is what real still drives him every day to jump out from bed. And he's the first one to arrive at the facility. 
he's not the last one to leave because he's like the chickens. When the sun goes down, he likes to go to his uh, home. But it's amazing. It's amazing the, the passion every day he has to be there with the horses. And, and I think this is, this is very, this is very nice and unique. And, um, and every day it gives us lessons of life. And, and I just hope to be as wise as he is passing all these values to my, to my son, my daughters. And well, if, if I, if I was able to be half of what he is, I was already very proud of myself. Do you think that in whatever sphere in life, it's not just about passion, it's, it's about the tribe, the family, and that is it, do you, do you feel that it's as important in life to, to find that tribe, to find that family, you know, because not everybody comes from a functional family, obviously. And how do we, how would we, how, you know, how, how do we go about finding such a functional tribe? Because I, I don't believe that humans can thrive otherwise. It's, it, 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 it's, it's our nature. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. And, and you know, because it's not, my father was also lucky because it was not just his wisdom. He was also lucky. He had three girls and the three of us in a very natural way. And with the same passion, we wanted to do what we do. I give you an example. Nowadays, my father has seven grandchildren and only one is following this, this passion, which is Inês, my daughter. She, she's crazy. She, she was bitten by the bug and she's like horse crazy, like as crazy as we are. But then I have Beatrice, she's a biologist. And then I have Francisco that is still a 12 years old kid that has no idea what he wants to go uh, to be when he grow up. But as a tribe, as you mentioned, a tribe will work with, with a direction of bringing a project all together. A tribe thinks in a simple way, effective way, but with the same purpose. So for example, I give you the example of my side of my family, the one that I have built. I choose for a man that I have married, a man that has nothing to do with horses. I do not regret it. And just because he accepts who I am, because he has the same passion for what he does. So he does understand there's, there's this craziness about something that make us work every day, every single day without stopping and without, you know, there's no weekends, but he has the same passion for what he does it has nothing to do with the horses, but he, 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 he understands it. But then I was lucky because he also has this passion for something else. So he understands because if I had a person in my life that would not accept what I do, then the function of, of bringing a tribe was not possible. So it's not just what we do or what my parents have created. They were lucky 
because the three of us, we wanted to do this. So building this tribe, you know, all the ingredients were there. So will I be enough bringing the tribe and having the tribe together like my parents were able to do with us? I don't know. Because, you know, Beatrice, one day she will want to maybe go abroad and be a biologist, a biologic or a scientist, I don't know, in German or in China. I don't know. She will no longer be here, closer to us. My son, I have no idea. I know Ines, she will, she will keep doing what we do. But I think the, the ingredients to the success of, of what we did was because we always, we were all crazy about the same thing. And so you understand what I, I mean? I do, I do. So, but so, so it, it, be it begs another question though. So for example, you say, so we all know that horse people can be very insular. Um, we, we, we are a little bit autistic in our way. We, we are very, very, very focused on one thing and we can send an entire dinner table to sleep, you know, talking about the shoulder in and then be mystified that they were not as interested as we were. But you said, for example, that your husband does not share the passion for horses, but he has a passion. What's his passion? His passion is a water sports. So uh, my husband is an athlete. Okay. He's an, he's an athlete and he is a, a high, uh, how you say, high level competition. A high level. High le yeah. 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 Athlete, so yeah. to, to achieve what, what he has. What, what's he, what's he, he doing? He does, um, kayak. So he was uh, running on marathons in kayak and he won the, a lot of things. And nowadays is the national coach of Portuguese team of kayak. In marathon under water in the open ocean. So, when someone is dedicated, you know, as an athlete, if you want to be a top athlete, you need to train every day, and you need to to be focused in what you are doing if you want to be on top, right? Mm -hmm. So he understands this passion. On his own world, because, you know, he's, he's crazy about training. He's crazy about, he needs to train every day. He needs to be doing something related with sports. He, he don't know the difference between a donkey and a horse. And we, even if we are together for 28 years old, years, but he's, he's, he always have accept and respect and he share, he is he, happy that I have this passion. Because he also, he understands because he also have a passion for another world. So he understands because some people, they don't understand why we are so crazy about what you do. Mm. I mean, this is it. So, so it's what I'm feeling groping for here, I think is, is the, what, what makes a tribe, what makes a tribe functional? Because it, as you say, your, your parents are quite lucky that the three daughters all wanted to do it. But now there are these grandkids, seven of them, only one, that's your daughter, is going that direction. Yet your family's very tight and you all live in effectively a tribal compound. You know, you, you, your houses are, yeah. you know, very close together. to each other, same bit yeah. of land on that hillside overlooking the river. All very lovely. You're, you're still meeting for lunch every day. Even the ones who are, you know, your husband's coming up from the water, you're coming up from the riding arena and you're exchanging. So is the 
And then you say, as you know, Beatrice, she's not, she doesn't care from horses, but she's loves the animal world, but she's going to go a different direction. But two words kept coming up in, 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 in this podcast. One is respect. The other one is passion. So is the, is the way to find your tribe. So for example, you and your husband have found your own tribe within the tribe, which one of you has this thing with the horse. One of you has this thing with, with the water, but both of you give each other the space to perform that because ultimately you respect the, each other the value. Works. Well, also you see the value in, 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 the, in this passion and this endeavor for its own sake, no matter what it is. Is that the key? Is that the key to the functioning tribe? Going back to this idea of, you know, horses and the humanities and these riding schools in the Renaissance where people were engaging with it as much for emotional regulation to train people to be uh, courtiers and diplomats, not just warriors, et cetera, et cetera. Is, is, is this what it boils down to? Is, is it passion and then respect for other people's passions? I think so. Now that putting it like that, I think, I think that's, that's what it resumes. It's like, if you respect and you have a passion, I think it's uh, the ingredients that every family should have mm. respect and passion because respect, because you need to respect the other, if you want the other to respect you. So it's, it's a mutual feeling and passion because every morning. You need to have something that make you jump out of bed. And if you don't have a passion in life, what makes you wake up in the morning? Yeah, it's, 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 it, it makes me think of the shows that you guys do. So we've talked a lot about the training, but we haven't talked as much about the Apassionata. Now it's called Cavaluna, the show. But when people see this show that goes out, as you say, for seven months all over Germany and has inspired other similar types of show, which you guys have helped to put together as well in other parts of the world. What that seems to come down to me is dream. People have a dream. Maybe this dream, it's a little girl's dream about riding a horse. Maybe it's somebody else's dream about putting on a show or dance. Maybe it's somebody else's dream about being a biologist or, or being a a kayaker, but at some point before the passion, there has to be a dream, doesn't there? Well, how, I think so. I think that everybody, if, if you love horses, even before you have been a dresser rider, I'm pretty sure that you have dream about horses, mm. right? So, and sometimes you dream about something that you have no idea why you dream about, and then you discover later on it will be a passion. It's what is life without dreams? What is life without passion? It's everything is related, right? So we need to dream like my father. Sometimes he dreams about the horses going to train the next day because it makes it's because it's a passion. It's it's we are we are quite crazy about it, right? So you need to dream, and and if you don't dream. You will not be motivated. We need to dream. I need to dream to be, to what do I want in the future? You need to dream. When you think about the future, you are dreaming somehow because you are not yet there, 
but you are already imagining what if I was there? So you are dreaming. So every, everybody dreams about something. Everybody dreams about the future. And it's all related with passion. Everything is connected. Everything is connected. So is, is, is the functional tribe, is the secret to that encouraging the dreams of your children? so that the tribe can continue to find passions and yes. develop, whether it's horses or whether the passion changes, but that the dreams of the children. Has to be always there, you yeah. know, and that you need to encourage your children to follow their dreams. Even if you are afraid that their dreams will bring them into a future that, you know, maybe they will they will have more difficulties because, you know, for example, Ines, she wants to follow this as a, as a professional and that's her dream. I know it's hard because, you know, I know in the end of the month, I really need to be careful because, you know, the horses, you can make money, but they, they eat more than what they create. <laughs> so, but, you know, one day, my father gave an example to someone, a father of some children that they wanted to follow their dreams. And nowadays, they are very important riders in the world. And this parent, he was very concerned because the, the kids, and we are talking like 40 years ago. So those kids, they wanted to follow their passion, which was working with horses. And this parent, he was very concerned with the future of these kids. And my father said to this, to this father, you know, better if they eat soup, but they are happy, then they eat lobster, but they are unhappy. And this sentence always stayed inside of my mind because, you know, we only live once and we really should do what makes us happy. And if we are able to survive doing what makes us happy, then life was enough. Even better if we can show other people how to share in that happiness. And, and I think that's a little bit of what I have dreamed about my life. And I'm following my dream. It's a sort of inner child thing, isn't it? The follow, following, never, never losing sight of that little girl or that little boy that was inside you dreaming that dream where I think you were lucky, where I was lucky too, was that your parents, my parents, again, this word respect, had an innate respect for the power of dream and the necessity of dream. And as you said, the necessity of passion, what makes you get up out of bed in the morning, um, even though my parents were not horsey at all, but they did respect the time and effort and passion that I put into it. And although it mystified them, they, they encouraged. The show that you guys put on, the current one, Cavaluna, the last time I saw it, what I realized was that, yeah, of course, the audiences, and there's you know hundreds of thousands of people that come and see this show. It's, it's a, an amazing show. It is like Cirque du Soleil with horses. What initially makes them want to come is that they're going to see amazing horsemanship. They're going to see amazing stuff. They're going to have, there's going to be a wow factor. But of course, every show that you guys put on has a story, has a narrative that goes through, that carries each act, each number, 
you know, through. So there's a logical progression. A story is told with a beginning, a middle and end with characters on some sort of fairy tale, on some sort of quest, facing dilemmas, finding resolution. There happen to be horses involved, but there's also dancers, there's also musicians. And it, it, it's a story that would hold up just as well if there were no horses involved. It just happens to that the acting is done with actors with four legs as, as well as actors with two. You guys are really a dream factory, aren't you? You, 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 you hatch these dreams. You put these dreams on for the wider world. But yet if people want to come and participate in the nuts and bolts, as you've been describing, Valencia Method, how you put these horses together to tell the stories of these dreams, well, they can come and do that too. They can come and engage at every level in the dream. Yes, maybe that's what we do. <laughs> and that's, yes. that, that, that's magical because I, I think what, what is the power of story? It, it takes one outside of time and space. It, it takes one into another dimension, another reality, another self that's outside of, it, it, it's like a trance state. It's, you know, it's like a shamanic state. We are, after all, the storytelling ape, right? You know, when, when you live in a dream, the dream loses the power of being the dream. So for us, it's, it's what we do. It's just normal. But it, it, with, with the people that come and visit us, and, and we are lucky enough because we have amazing people that come and, and visit us so, to learn with us, and they all have this, this open mind and really open heart. And yeah, somehow every week, because, you know, people come for a week and then they go and then other people come. So like every week we somehow they remind us how cool we are doing what we do. So I think, yes, I think we, that's what we do. We, we make dreams come true. And I think it's really, especially our horses. We are just the interpreter of the horses. You know, our schoolmasters are the ones that really make dreams come true. One of the things which, you know, there's a, there's a, there's an increasing conversation now in the animal world of this business of consent. You know, do I have the right to ride a horse? Do we have the right? to own dogs? Do we have the right to, et cetera, et cetera. It seems that in this, in this day and age, we're increasingly having a conversation now, hearing a conversation where st stuff that was not said 20 years ago, should we even be riding horses? Does the horse have consent in this? Should we even own animals at all? Should we own a dog? You know, for people of my generation, this is a bit of a new thing, but you're talking about dreams and setting people free. I believe that this happens for the horse as well. So for example, your work has helped me work with special needs, children and people with the horse moving underneath them in a way that transmits well-being and helps with communication. But because in my world, um, a lot of the horses that come to the centers that we help to create for the work with autism and other special needs, these are horses that are donated. These are often horses that are not bought. And of course they're donated for a reason, um, cause they're usually a bit broken. People don't give away their best horses. They, you know, give away horses that they messed up. And one of the things which I have discovered, but I, I think you're well aware of, but I don't think it comes up so much in the conversations that people come to you with is the rehabilitation of horses. I, I would say that 
your method, the Valenza method, I use it daily to help bring horses to well-being. And a lot of those horses that come to me come broken. They come broken in the body. They come broken in the mind. And by working through the patterns that you guys have shown me, I've seen, I've lost count now of the number of horses that have come to this well-being, which one would always hope for, but it's, it's such a radical transformation in the horse mentally and emotionally, as well as physically. Has this become a greater and greater part of the conversation around your work? The well-being? The, the well-being of the horse, yeah, well, what people, and today, just today, it's funny that we, we, we are bringing this, top, this topic to, to the conversation. Because today I was talking with one of our clients. She, got, she comes from the United States. And, and she was just amazed how all horses are so happy. It's like, you know, there's not a single horse that it will not, the horses are happy. And, and that bring, that says a lot on the way they are, you know, a, a horse will not lie. If the horse is not feeling well, you, you will not lie. You will not be like performing. Oh, it's a client. I need to make her happy. Let's just pretend I'm happy. You don't have this. So the horse is happy because he's feeling good. And we have, uh, I think also because the same way you have, you know, sometimes we find horses that are, it's like giving them a chance of another life. And a lot of horses that we, we use as schoolmasters are horses that had a life before. And not always that life was good. So a lot of horses have arrived to us, you know, you know what is a horse with no soul? Mm. It's like this, you look into his eye and it's empty. It's an empty eye. And, you know, after a month or two, you start to feel that that horse finally has a soul. It was just deep inside of him. And, and I think the horses, they feel really, it's like they feel appreciated. They, they feel the gratitude of having that, a second life. There's, I think, a horse that had a previous life that was not the best life, once he experiments the good life, that horse is, it's like, is it, how you say, it's appreciated? Is yeah. uh, no, it's grateful? It's grateful? Grateful. Well, that, uh, that, that, that's the, that's the final part of the secret, isn't it? That is the secret to happiness, gratitude. Yeah. Whether you have two legs or four. Yes. And, and, and it's in a very simple way. You, you, and you know this because when you work with animals, they, they are, they don't lie. And being able to transform a horse in something that makes him happy, I think it's, it's really nice. And, and you don't do this expecting them to do something in exchange you do this because it makes you feel good right it's like it's like like charity when you help someone you help because it it makes you feel good and and this also part of what what we do and yeah it's it's a good life that's <laughs> just it. but Remember when you said a lot of people say, should we be 
riding a horse or should we do having a dog? I could, I cannot imagine my life without an animal. And I have 12 dogs. As, as you know, I have a lot of, of animals that I need to be surrounded. <laughs> and, and remember when I said, when we start to work a horse, we start to study him in what he will be good at. A horse is much happier if you have a purpose in life than in a horse that lives a lifetime in a paddock with no goals in life. A, a horse that lives in a paddock just eating, it's a more unhappy horse than a horse that attention. We need to provide him a good life. It's not, not just forcing a horse to do what he's not meant men to do. But if that horse that you are trying to train, that you are respecting, that you are trying to read in what he's good at, if his life is good at doing trail rides, you will be the most happier horse doing trail rides. If he's good in the ring doing dressage, you will be the best horse doing dressage. If he's good doing, I don't know, working equitation, he will be happy because he has a job. He has, he has, he's not depressed. I have seen a lot of horses that, you know, they're just there and they feel like they're not as happy. Mm -hmm. It's the same with people. You know, if, if we don't have a purpose, we become more depressive. We need yeah. to have a purpose in life. It's true. And, and, and at the I, end of the day, we're all mammals. We all, we all have this. And we I, need I, I suppose people it, might I, say, well, in the wild, the horse the doesn't same, have a purpose, this, but, but he does because he does because survival they, 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 exactly. is very active. Yeah. But they need to be in the wild, not yeah. in a paddock. Where you go and put the foot to him, where you know just the flies annoying them. That's yeah. a very boring life. Yeah. It's really boring. They they need they need to be to be challenged. The same with dogs, you know. And of course, each breed has its own uh, skills, but they need they need to feel that they have a purpose in life, even if it's just to make you happy. That's the purpose to make well, us the, happy. Well, the, the exchange of happiness. What what is it they say? The the greatest wisdom you'll ever learn is how to love and be loved in return. And I remember it's the first time. Simple. I I remember hearing that the first time as a sort of young man, thinking, "Oh, what do you? What do they mean? What do they mean?" And then as I grew older and older, thinking, "Not as easy as it That's sounds." That's it. Yeah. 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 But we, we, it's not as easy as it sounds because also we like to make things more complicated. Mm. In the end of the day, we just need to think that sometimes we make things more complicated than what they are. That is true, especially we monkeys. Yes, yes. The monkeys are the worst. <laughs> Maybe we need a horse and a dog to cool us out. I, 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 I'm a great believer that when I see the horses transmitting well-being, um, I guess you could say it's biological. It's the mammalian caregiving system. Dogs giving us love, horses giving us love, we returning it. But nonetheless, that's, that's 
that's the organism, right? That, that's, that's who we all are. We're not reptiles. We, we exchange on an emotional level. And if this is missing from our lives, human or animal, as you say, we become depressed. And I think your, your point about purpose is, is very, very true. Purpose and, and service, not servitude, not being a servant, but service, which, which is the choice, the choosing. Because I, I've watched you working with your horses. I've, I, I, horses, they're, they're not forced to do anything. They, they do it and, and, and the, the overall impression one comes away with on a heart level, not just an intellectual level, but on a heart level, is joy. I don't think, I, it, to the listeners, if you're not horsey, it doesn't matter. Go to the living museum that is the Valencia's riding stables in, <laughs> in uh, Lisbon. You don't need to be an artist or an art historian to appreciate a trip around the National Gallery. And you don't need to be an architect to appreciate a beautiful building and the history behind it. And you don't need to be a chef to know good food when you eat it. You don't need to be a vintner to appreciate good wine. Beauty and art, when you see it, always stands out. And this living equestrian art, which still exists, and has come down to us through the centuries and the millennia and is still being practiced and presented in this way, it's worth seeing just for itself. Um, when you go into the Valencia's riding arena, it's, it's Baroque, the, the, the pictures on the wall, the art, the feel, but also there's a, a tribune, there's a, uh, a place where you can sit just to watch. Just in the same way, if you go to the Spanish riding school in Vienna, you can just sit in the balcony and watch as they work with the horses and practice their art, practice their living art in front of you. Do yourself a favor when you go down to Lisbon next time and include that as part of your cultural experience. And I think you're going to find that you come away with a feeling of joy and participation in that tribe, not just the cultural interest of the whole thing that will surprise you. So if people want to do this, Sophia, how do they get in contact with you? How do they, how can they find their way to this temple of the horse that is your you place? Can visit, you can visit our website, valenciaquestionacademy.com and um, you will find all the contacts there and uh, what we do and it will be uh, a nice introduction for what you do, what we do. Valencia. Equestrianacademy.com. Equestria and please spell Valencia for us. V-A-L-E-N-C-A. Right. So for, for those with an ear that a lot of people add an I to it and say, oh, Valencia, like the town in Spain. No, no. Valencia. Valencia. Equestrian Academy. ValenciaEquestrianAcademy.com. And they can find an email link to you there? Exactly. Well, the email, yes, the email, you want me to say the email? It would be helpful, <laughs> I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the email is info at valenciaquestionacademy.com. Info at valenciaquestionacademy.com. And people can also come and learn with you. They can come and do courses with you. They can come and yes. learn this horsemanship. 
Exactly. So we do have some programs that includes the lessons and some others that includes also some sightseeing, which is, you know, since you're in Portugal, this is a beautiful country. So you can have the both of the best worlds, like a and, little bit sightseeing or and the lessons as well. And can people, if they can't get to, they're so busy in their riding arenas at home, if they want Valensis to come to them, is that possible? Do you guys travel and teach as well? Yes, we do. We do also clinics worldwide. We, we do nowadays, we go to United States, Australia, New Zealand. Within in Europe, we go to Italy, France, Belgium, Germany, Spain, England. And yeah, that's, those are the countries that you will find us. And, so and Okay, go on. If one of those countries is not in the list, <laughs> we can always add a new country if you want one of us to go and uh, travel to, to you. So the clinics, it's usually, it works like two days or three days clinic and where we will set a place and people travel with their horses there and then we just do a clinic there. So if somebody wants to learn the steps of this dance that you were just discussing with their own horse you, it is they, possible you can they can bring you to them and you guys yes your team will yes help them we to can learn. yes fantastic well all i can say is having participated in that dream myself and having found what a beautiful dream it is and how it's set me and the horses I work with and the people that I work with my horses with, how it set us all free, truly, I would strongly encourage listeners to participate in this dream. It's a very good dream. Sophia, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And you are always welcome for those who want to visit us. It will be our pleasure to receive you in Portugal, in Villa Franca de Xira is just 20 minutes north of Lisbon. So very, very easy, very close to, to the airport as well. And, and if you feel um, afraid of traveling to another country that you don't know, we provide everything. Pick you up at the airport, we'll bring you to our facility. We will take care of you and you will not feel lonely. And um, you will be part of the family. Okay. And listeners, it's true because it happened to me. Yes, it is. <laughs> it did. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Sophia. Um, now, some listeners will have questions. Um, can we have you back on um, to answer those questions as they come in for a second, a second round? Sure. My pleasure. That would be fantastic. I can't wait. It will be. That All will right, be uh, amazing. So if okay. you've got questions Thank that you. you want to ask her, what is a shoulder in? What is this dance? How does it <laughs> yeah, work? For example. Write them down, send them to us, and we will have her back to answer them. Okay? It's my pleasure. All I'll right. be waiting for it. Thank See you. you. Bye. And love to all the bye family. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops, 
in Horseboy Method, Movement Method and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.